When I was growing up, my family would play board games. My hunch is yours did as well. I know a number of you actually still play a lot of board games today. Card games, board games, all sorts of things growing up. But the challenge with any type of board game is that they can actually also become boring over time. And so maybe your household was like my household. We'd make up house rules to make the game a little bit more exciting, a little bit more fun. One game we played, Uno. Uh, we would play this this card game. It was the Christian card game back in the day because I grew up in an era where you weren't allowed to have playing cards in your house. Anyways, totally different story. Uh, in Uno, one of the cards that you can get is a pickup two card. And we played a house rule modification where you could play that pickup two and the person next to you would pick up the, the two cards. But if they had one, then they could also play a pickup two. And then the next person to go would have to pick up four cards and it would continue to add cards over and over and over again. And sometimes if play got really crazy, sometimes you'd see a person picking up eight, 10, 12 cards as everyone put down uh, their plus twos. That was just one of the house rules that we made up for the game of Uno. And of course, one of the games that we also played, one other game was Monopoly. You can see that this particular version, I think this is from my, my wife's family growing up, this particular version has seen some love back in the day. Uh, Monopoly is another game that we had a bunch of house rules for. Um, Monopoly, well, you might remember it from its other name, Monotony. Monopoly has a tendency to go pretty long. And it has a tendency to get one-sided very quickly if someone starts to grab up property quickly. And so we made a few house rules uh, that were uh, would keep people in the game or would make the game go faster. Uh, one of the things that we would do is that uh, we would put a little bit of a pot of money on the free parking space. And then if you landed directly on free parking, that pot was yours. Usually it was a $200 uh, pot minimum, sort of like when you would pass go, uh, you would collect $200. This is when you landed on free parking, then you would get the $200. To make it even a little bit spicier, we would make it so that all the bank fees and the get out of jail costs would also be added to that pot. And so the money could go up and up and up. And as the game went on, if you were a person who was maybe short on funds and assets, then maybe you landed on free parking and that would keep you in the game just a little bit longer. Another rule that we had for Monopoly was you had to travel around the board once before you could purchase any property. And so that allowed someone who didn't get to go first to not be left behind. Or if you passed go, Normally, the banker would just give you the $200, but sometimes we made a rule that was a little bit tougher that you had to remember that you passed go and you had to collect the $200. So you had to ask for it. Now, you probably have a bunch of house rules as well. If you go and Google what house rules are for different games, you can see all sorts of different variations and rules about Uno and Monopoly and all sorts of games. But... It's interesting that the house rules never changed the rules for winning. They just changed the modifiers on how to get to the win. In Uno, you want to be the first person out as many times as you can in a round. 
so that by the end of the game, whenever someone reaches that maximum score that you can have, then you're not that person. And as a matter of fact, you have the lowest score of everyone. You do that and you win the game of Uno. Not just the rounds, but the whole game. In Monopoly, you could have all sorts of house rules. You could have all sorts of modifiers. But as long as you had the most cash and assets at the end of the game, that made you the winner in Monopoly. The win for Monopoly was still, no matter what the house rules were, to have more than your opponents. So what's the win for the church? What's the purpose of the church? Now it's critical. And I hope that you've gotten a sense of how critical the church is over these last few weeks that we've been looking in our series called Missing Church. I know I have. I've gained a whole deeper appreciation of what the church is and what the church should be about. We've learned that the church is about God. That it's his church and that he promised to build it. We learned that the church is a priority because Jesus is a priority. He's the cornerstone, not just of the church, but all of reality, all of creation, all of life. And because of what he has accomplished on our behalf, the church is not made up of programming or meetings. The church isn't even a building. It's made up of people. And so the question is now, what do us people do? What do us church people do? What is our purpose? What is the purpose of the church? Why do we exist? Now what? Well, we know that for a sports team, a sports team can have all sorts of different house rules, but there's only one goal, and that's to win championships. An orchestra can have all sorts of different uh, ways that they practice and come together, but ultimately the win is to create beautiful music. A company or an organization, we know that they employ a lot of people, and the whole goal of that business or organization is to sell goods or services and experiences. Otherwise, they wouldn't exist anymore. And churches can look remarkably different but no matter where you go in the world, in this continent or on other continents, whether a church is high liturgical or really experiential and you know, Pentecostal in expression, no matter when the church has existed, no matter where the church has existed, no matter what the house rules are in that church, the win is the same for every church as well. So, what is the win? What would you say the purpose of the church is? And, while you're answering that question, would your answer to that question be different four or five months ago? As we wrestle with that, what would you say? Is the purpose to gather is that the purpose for everyone, for lots and lots of people to come together, to, to really have just everyone coming together, as many people as possible? Is it to worship? Is it to preach and, and to teach? Is it to evangelize? Is it to care? Is it to show compassion and empathy? 
Is it to pray? Is it all of the above? Well, I'd like to suggest to you this morning that the church has all of those things in common. But those are not the purpose of the church, why the church exists. Those things are a means to an end. Even our church's purpose statement, to help connect people to Jesus Christ and help them grow in a caring community, are our house rules. And we encourage every church to be doing those things, but that's not the purpose of the church. That's the methodology. That's the strategy of the church. That's how we evaluate what we are doing. But we have a win that we are trying to accomplish. And to show you that win, that applies to, to every church, regardless in what era of history it's existed in, regardless of what part of the world it's in, regardless of the expression of all of those practices are. The win is the same. And we see that win in Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 20. It says this. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or even imagine. According to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church. And in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's the purpose of the church. That's the win. Bringing glory to God in the church. To reveal his <clears throat> glory. Now, glory is a word that we'll sing about in some worship choruses and some hymns. But we don't often wrestle with it in everyday life. Or, or, or so we think. We think glory is one of those churchy words, but it actually exists in many ways. We just don't actually think about it very consciously until we are captured by it. So let me explain what I mean by that. A number of years ago, I was flying into Calgary, Alberta. And if you don't know where uh, Calgary is, it's nestled right into the foothills of the Rocky Mountains in Alberta, Canada. And it is gorgeous. Now, of course, I was flying from Toronto at the time, going from east to west. So the time zones were changing. You know, you leave at 9 o'clock. You arrive at 9.30 local time, even though it's across the country. <laughs> and as we were coming in, the plane banked to come in and make its final approach to the airport. And I got to see the Rocky Mountains in all their glory. I got to see their immensity. I got to see just their, the greatness of them because down nestled into the corner of this large city in, in Canada, Calgary, it's just nestled right in there. It's just it's this little pocket and rising above it, just these grand mountains it, taking over the entire vista. It was breathtaking. It was awe-inspiring. I got to see the Rocky Mountains in all their glory. You may not have seen the Rocky Mountains, but you've seen scenes like this. If you're on social media or if you've ever been out in nature, you know that people take pictures of nature and put them on social media so that we can get a sense 
of the glorious thing that we've seen. It's this amazing vista. It might be uh, a forest. It might be a waterfall. It might be along the edge of some water, the ocean or a lake, where it just seems like the water doesn't end. That's glory. That's the visual picture of glory. And it's the essence of something. It's the, the weightiness, the, the value, the grandeur, the greatness of something. And when we talk about the glory of God and for his glory to be in the church, what we're talking about is that all of who God is, all of his attributes being summed up, working together in perfect harmony. That's what we're talking about. When we say God's glory, all of his attributes, all working together, all of who he is, the glory of God. And it's going public with that. It's being revealed here. It's being shown here. It's being shown in his church, in his people. Because as his image bearers, that is who we were created to be. Take a look at Romans 3.23. We know this verse well. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. One of the consequences of sin was that it caused us to be unable to be the image bearers, the glory bearers of God. And we often stop there. We'll talk about the fact that we need our sins forgiven. But we don't talk about the consequences that we don't reveal who God is anymore. But look at the next verse, verse 24. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Sin caused us to fall short of God's glory. To be unable to reveal it as his glory bearers. As his image bearers. And Jesus comes. And he does something amazing. With this incredible implications. That we have been justified. That when God looks at us now. He does not see us as sinful. And as defiant against him. But that we are now right with God. We are at peace with God. And that has some incredible implications about the work of Jesus. You see, we talk about a lot. That Jesus' death was perfect. And it was perfect not only because he was God in the flesh. But because he lived perfectly for the glory of God. John 17 says this really well. Jesus, at the end of his life, at the end of his ministry, before he died on the cross, was teaching his disciples. And after he taught them, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, 
the one, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. You see, if the only thing Jesus was supposed to do was die for us, his life, his 33 years on this planet, his three years of ministry makes no sense. There's just this pause. But instead of him just coming and sacrificing his life as the perfect God in the flesh, as the son of God, he is also man. He is fully man in every way, tempted like us to sin in every capacity and refusal to yield to it. He was as humanity was created to be before the fall. The image bearers, the glory bearers of God. And he did the work that God had given him to do, which was to reveal God's glory, to bear his image, to reveal God to the world. You see, Jesus died for more than your sins. Jesus died to restore God's glory to you and to me. The cross stands at the centerpiece of all human history, not because it makes much of us, but because it makes much of God. It's not just a forgiveness of sins and a new right standing with God. That is technically correct and technically true. But the fuller, grander picture of that is the reversal of sin's effects. Where we were no longer able to bring glory to God. Because we constantly fight the desire to bring glory to ourselves. But now we are capable of bringing glory to God. Because of what Jesus has done. And that makes. This sort of summary statement about what Christianity. What makes Christianity so special. That Christianity isn't about behavior modification. God isn't just interested in you becoming a better person. Not for all have sinned and you can't be a good person anymore. For all have sinned and maybe you're going to make some mistakes along the way. We've fallen short of God's glory. Of recognizing his grandeur. Of displaying his grandeur. And yet now through Jesus that has been reversed. He is interested in restoring you to why you were originally created. And that is to be an image bearer of the glory of God. A glory bearer for God. That is why you exist. That is why I exist. And that is why the church exists. Take a look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul would tell, once again, just a church that is really struggling with what it means to be the church, to be a Christian. And he tells them this, we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. 
The Holy Spirit in us when we become saved, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, gives us the capability to reveal God's glory. And then as we become sanctified, as we become, as we work out our salvation more and more with fear and trembling, as we follow Jesus, we become more and more capable of being Well, what we were designed to be in the first place, why God created humans in the first place, to reveal who he is, to reveal him, to reveal all of the attributes, all of his essence, all of his nature, all of his grandeur, all of his glory, all of God's glory, not our own. And that's in spite of the fact that people still look at us and they see the scars, they see that the things that have happened, we're not fully restored in our physical bodies. To having the glory of God being revealed in us. But even that gives a greater display of God's greatness. Paul would say later in the next chapter in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In verse 6. For God who said let light shine out of darkness. Made his light shine in our hearts. To give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory. Displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. You see, his glory is becoming more of a reality in us as we work through sanctification, as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And it's done so even as imperfect as we are, which is an amazing reality. These, These jars of clay. In the ancient world, they would have been little pottery lamps. They would have been just small little pieces of jars and and, and pottery. And they would have had very little value on their own. They were vases and urns that were commonplace in every household. And here's the amazing thing. In the ancient world, when Paul was writing, people kept their best valuables in jars of clay and urns and vases like this because who would think to look for something valuable hidden away like a life savings or precious jewel or an heirloom who would think to hide it in something so common and that's what makes it so genius it prevented theft but that's why the vessel's so valuable if a person were running out of their house, say their, their home was on fire or there was something happening to their home, the first thing they'd do is grab that vessel because that would be the thing that had the most value. The, the vessel was valuable because of the contents. That's what we are. We aren't valuable because look at us. Hey, look at us. We've been saved. We're valuable because God resides in us. Because God has now restored us and gives us the capability to display his glory. Like a restored car. If you've ever seen a show on restoring a vehicle, you've seen them roll into the body shop. Or you've seen those uh, junkers lying out in the fields where you just think, wow, it's been stripped down to nothing. It's just a metal shell. It's a frame. There's nothing left. But you put that in the hands of a master. And at the end of the show, all of a sudden, it looks like a $100,000 vehicle. And it's amazing. And what people ask when they see that restoration is, 
who was able to do this? Who accomplished this? Who took this before and made it after? And that tells us what we're to be about. So we tell them. Because people want to know, how was this change? How were you restored? Was some behavior changes you made? Or was it something better? It was something better. That is, God himself, through Jesus Christ, has not only forgiven your sins and justified you before God, but that he's restored to you the amazing capability of being a glory bearer, an image bearer for him. That's why he would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just one more chapter over in verse 20, that we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. And we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors. And good ambassadors... Well, they're ambassadors who know that they live to represent someone else, not themselves, right? We, the church, don't live for ourselves. We live for his glory, not our own. We are never more like the church when we live like Jesus. We are never more like the church when we live to glorify God, no matter the cost and sacrifice, we are never more fulfilling the purpose of the church. We are never more like the church than when we take up our cross as opposed to when we fight for our crown. We are never more like Jesus when we live like Jesus who, as Paul said in Philippians 2, though being in very nature God, did not consider his equality with God, with being God, something to be used for his own advantage, but made himself nothing. Took on the form of a servant. And servants serve. They serve God in every way. What are the resources I have? What are the opportunities I have? How can I use them for the glory of God? We are never more living out the purpose of the church when each of us unites together and says, we will live for his glory, no matter the cost, no matter the cross, because we have been not only saved, but we have been restored. Restored as image bearers. Restored as glory bearers, glory bearers to put him on display. We are never more like the church when we live for the purpose of the church, his glory. Couple of questions for you as we close. Some questions that'll come up in your growth groups this week. Some questions that you can ask uh, around your table as you're sitting with your family and friends. Uh, some questions that you can journal down. Here they are. 
Question one. Since Jesus lived and died for the glory of God, how should we then think about our salvation and our daily priorities? Since Jesus lived and died for the glory of God, how should we then think about our salvation and our daily priorities? And question two. Since the church exists for the glory of God, how should that affect our view of the local church and our individual participation in it? Let me pray for you. Lord, the church exists for your glory, to glorify you, to put you on display in all of your fullness, in all of your essence. And we as your people, as saved people, have been given the capability to do just that. And Lord, we struggle because our old sin nature tells us that we should live for our glory, that we should live to put ourselves on display in who we are. But when we do that, we miss what you're all about, what church is all about, and who Jesus is all about. So Father, would you speak to each one of us? Would you help us to see that we exist for your glory? And would you help us, Lord, to make daily decisions that live and die for your glory to be revealed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.